Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as the Supreme Court's term nears a close, we analyze some of the significant opinions released so far, which span religious liberty and free speech questions, the rights of union organizers, and the Affordable Care Act. We'll also look at what's at stake in two Arizona voting rights cases awaiting a decision, and how the court's 6-3 conservative majority is influencing its jurisprudence. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. Supreme Court has not yet issued its decision on the Arizona voting rights cases, but it has issued significant decisions recently with big implications for California, including striking down a nearly 50-year-old state regulation that let union organizers recruit farm workers at their work sites. To help assess the term of our nation's highest court and its 6-3 conservative majority, we're joined by Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, Melissa Murray, welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me, Mina. Also with us is Stephen Vladek, professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. He's also co-host of the National Security Law Podcast and CNN Supreme Court analyst. Stephen Vladek, glad to have you on Forum as well. Thanks, Mina. Great to be here. And I want to start with you, Stephen Vladek, if I could, with that decision affecting union organizing in California. A 1975 California law said that union organizers could meet with agricultural workers at their work sites before or after work, during lunch breaks, for up to 120 days a year, since farm workers can be uniquely hard to reach. Can you talk about what the court decided here? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really one of the big decisions, at least, you know, until the last two to come down on Thursday, where we really saw the new 6-3 majority flexing its muscles. Um, So the court held two things. First, it held that the California regulation you described 
is what's called a per se taking. That means that just the regulation by itself affects a deprivation of the property rights um, of the farm owners, of the you know the businesses that run these farms, um, and that therefore, right, California. Um, has a choice, basically. I mean, the court didn't say this as much, but California's choice is to either not enforce this law or because it's a taking to actually pay these businesses for the privilege of allowing these you know, union organizers onto their land. It's a pretty dramatic expansion of property rights. And I think one of the few decisions, at least on the court's merits docket that we've seen so far this term, that broke down so strictly along ideological Hmm. Interesting. So then, Melissa Murray, was it not that surprising to you uh, that they voted this way, that the justices came down on this decision in this way? I don't think it was surprising in terms of the ideological fracture that Steve mentions, but I do think it was surprising in that in so doing, the court really turned away from what has been a quite long line of precedent that has basically held that for purposes of regulation, um, these sorts of entry onto private property are not necessarily takings within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. So to that extent, it is actually a quite broad expansion of property rights, and I think it portends uh, perhaps a more threatening landscape going down the line for state regulation and federal regulation that requires entry into private property. So what happens now then, Melissa Murray? Stephen Vladek was talking about how if you rule that this is a taking, that generally the remedy is compensation. I mean, what would that look like uh, as a result of this decision potentially in California? Well, I think we saw a little bit of a glimmer of this at oral argument in this case, Cedar Point. Um, Justice Barrett asked one of the lawyers um, whether California would be required to compensate the property owners if this was in fact a takings, and if so, what would the appropriate amount of compensation be? And she sort of laid out, would it be a dollar? Would it be $20, $50, and so on? And so I think that is something that is left open here. What is the appropriate amount of compensation to allow for this kind of regulation to be put into effect and enforced and you know potentially is it so prohibitive that it is actually not worth it to the state to actually enforce these kinds of laws that make it easier for hmm. labor organizing to occur huh so that may be an opening if you're on the union side though stephen vladek do you think that the concerns that some uh, labor organizers have raised that this will really be a disservice to farm workers in their ability to learn about and join a union if they feel the need? Oh, I think there's no question, Mina, that this is going to have really negative consequences um, for the ability of unions to organize in these contexts, for the ability of workers to, you know, be apprised of their rights under federal labor law. But actually, I mean, Mina, I think it goes even further because there's no reason why the court's analysis is limited to unions. Um, I think we're now going to see a whole lot of litigation about other contexts in which states or the federal government requires it to allow Um, Stephen Vladek, I'm so sorry. We need you, I think, on a better line because your line keeps going in and out. So while we establish that a little bit, I will put that similar question to Melissa Murray, just in terms of the broader impact, especially for labor in this case. Well, I think there's certainly going to be a broader impact for labor. As Stephen suggested before he broke up a little bit, um, this is going to make it harder for labor organizers to reach farm workers. Um, As the case uh, suggested in the briefing, farm workers tend to be more itinerant. They move around a lot. Um, 
the place where you can find them is the place where they're working. And if labor organizers can't have access to those places without having to pay a fee or having the state pay a fee, then it will certainly be more difficult to organize workers and to apprise them of their rights under state and federal law. But in the broader landscape, the idea that allowing state officials or any official, for that matter, onto private property constitutes a taking of that property portends really disastrous consequences for the entire regime of regulation. So you could imagine, for example, that if an anti-discrimination law for example, um, forbids a private property owner from excluding certain individuals, whether it's African-Americans or people of particular religious faiths. Um, would that be considered a taking? Um, the court tried to sort of cabin that, but I really think that this particular ruling expands hmm. the prospect that we will see more and more challenges trying to push the envelope on what the regulatory takings look like and what private property and the rights of private property owners mean against this regime of regulation. Stephen Vladek, are you with us? And is that what you meant when you said that this law goes even further than making it hard to organize what Melissa Murray is saying here about the broader implications of a ruling like this on on anyone coming onto private property for uh, various reasons in a temporary manner? Absolutely. I mean, and I, I'm sorry for the technical difficulties. But yes, I mean, the court's analysis, you know, the majority opinion went out of its way to say we're not addressing government inspectors, for example, when the USDA sends meat inspectors into poultry plants. But, you know, the logic of the majority's decision, I think, is going to put a lot of pressure on the longstanding assumption that governments are allowed to send inspectors onto private property, that property rights, you know, stop at the border when it comes to hmm. government regulation. That's now, I think, to be fought over once again in the lower courts. Interesting. Well, this was a decision, Melissa Murray, that fell along you know, the traditional ideological lines of 6-3. But there was uh, a case where, this was the Catholic Adoption Agency case, where there was unanimity uh, among the conservatives and liberal justices on the court. And interestingly, it's a case where the Supreme Court ruled that a Catholic social services agency in Philadelphia could defy city rules and it can refuse to work with same-sex couples who want to take in foster children. Can you just talk about the reasoning in this case, Melissa Murray? Sure. Um, this is a really important religious exercise case. Um, as you say, Catholic Social Services is a subcontractor for the city of Philadelphia and basically handles some of its foster care placements, identifying and vetting prospective foster care parents. But of course, per the tenets of the Catholic faith, um, they are not particularly receptive to same-sex couples as uh, foster parents. And the city of Philadelphia says that if you are going to be a subcontractor, you have to abide by the city's anti-discrimination norms, which allow for individuals to be free of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And so Classic Social Services says that that is an imposition on their free exercise rights and the entire court agreed with them. And what the Chief Justice, who wrote the opinion for the court, said was that because there was discretion in this system, um, the idea that the city could grant an exemption from the generally uh, applicable rule that you had to comply with this anti-discrimination norm, because there was this discretion and the possibility of an exemption, this law was not necessarily broadly applicable, and it mm. had the opportunity to discriminate against religion. Um, to be clear here, I think that this was the court avoiding a more sweeping 
decision, um, one of the things that Catholic Social Services had asked for was to overrule a 1990 case, Employment Division versus Smith. The court did not do that here, although in that particular decision, um, there was a traditional 6-3 fracture with the more conservative justices um, voting to say that they would be willing to reconsider that particular precedent. But I think what we saw here were the three liberal justices really engaged in what might be described as a kind of appeasement of trying to stave off a much more sweeping decision that really would have swept away much of the court's free exercise jurisprudence in favor of a more muscular approach to the First Amendment and the rights of um, religion. Huh, interesting. So Stephen Vladek, that explains why they would have gone ahead and uh, voted for the Catholic agency, I guess, essentially, because they were concerned about much bigger, basically, I guess, losses with regard to religious liberty protections. While this was unanimous, though, I I think one thing that explains their decision a little bit more is, is actually how the conservative justices behaved behind the scenes. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about about how Justice Alito reacted to this particular uh, decision that was written by John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts. I already mentioned that there was a, a separate opinion by the three most conservative justices, Justice Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Neil Gorsuch, that would have gone further. And indeed, Mina, as you, as you allude to, the separate opinion by Justice Alito basically is quite critical of the majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts for not going further, for not actually, you know, fundamentally revisiting the entire edifice of religious liberty jurisprudence. And, you know, Mina, one of the things I think is really interesting about that is it's not just that the court wouldn't go that far in the big case, in this case, Fulton, it's that there was a much quieter ruling that the court had issued back in April, whereby a five to four vote um, with the conservatives, except for Chief Justice Roberts in the majority, the court had blocked California's restrictions on in-home gatherings on religious liberty grounds. You know, a lot of folks saw that as a harbinger of a broader ruling to come in the Philadelphia case. Justice Alito's concurrence gives rise to at least the, the possibility that the court ended up backing away from a broader ruling and that, in fact, there was a majority to go further that fell apart as we got closer to the decision day. And so we'll have to sort of wait another year or two to see if the court, if this new majority really does want to, you know, so fundamentally reorient the scope of the free exercise clause. Hmm. Well, we'll talk more with Stephen Vladek and Melissa Murray after the break. We're talking about the Supreme Court and the opinions it's issued so far this term. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As the Supreme Court's term nears a close, we're analyzing some of the significant opinions released so far, which span union organizing, free speech, and religious liberty. We're talking with Stephen Vlodek, Professor Vlod at the University of Texas School of Law, Melissa Murray, Professor Vlod, NYU School of Law. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the opinions the court's released so far? What do you think of how the court is wielding its 6-3 conservative majority? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So staying with religious liberty for just a moment and this uh, Catholic agency case in Philadelphia, Melissa Murray, uh, do you think that because of the basically the timeline that Stephen Vladek laid out just before the break about how there were these um, these cases that were decided basically on the shadow docket, right, essentially, uh, that basically struck down California's um, laws against religious services and, and in-home gatherings during the pandemic. And then we have this case where you're seeing a little bit more of I mean, maybe on on functional grounds, what it essentially did was uh, it basically, you know, recalibrated the rights of religious organizations even a little bit more. And I guess the question I have for you is, do you think that we're just moving towards what will ultimately be a takedown of precedent that was set by Smith, which really does protect, which really did say which, which <laughs> that you that religious liberty was not necessarily something that was above all else that should be protected um, in situations where religion is not singled out. So let, let me just sort of disagree a little bit with the premise, Mina. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to suggest to your listeners that the Fulton case and the unanimous decision that the court reached was somehow an example of a kind of limited incrementalism. It is mm. actually a quite muscular approach to free exercise. Um, the idea that any law that provides any kind of discretion or exemption is one that necessarily um, has the possibility of discriminating against religion and therefore should be subject to the most rigorous review from a court um, is a quite muscular approach. I mean, it basically elevates religious freedom to a kind of favored nation status. And you know what law doesn't offer some room for discretion or exemption? Almost all of them do. And so that basically means any law could then be challenged on free exercise grounds and the religious interests would prevail. So even though this was a nine to zero decision that avoided a much more sweeping decision on religious liberty grounds, doesn't mean that it is narrow or incremental or small in some way. This is actually quite a big step um, in the court's religious freedom jurisprudence. And more importantly, we have to recognize that this was a case that pitted religious liberty on the one hand against the rights of LGBTQ persons. And the last person on the court who was trying to wrestle with this tension was Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion for the court in Masterpiece Cake Shop in 2018. And there, he really talked about the dignitary interests to LGBTQ persons if religious liberty were to prevail, if someone, for example, was was, was able to decline to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. This opinion is almost utterly devoid of any mention of the third-party harms to LGBTQ persons um, that will be on the receiving end of this treatment if Catholic Social Services is allowed 
to use religious liberty and free exercise to limit who may be a foster parent. So the stakes of this could not be higher. And again, I want to underscore that this is not an opinion that is as narrow as perhaps we think it is. It is one that avoids a much more sweeping decision, but it's not narrow. Ah, that's a really interesting point, because it reminds me, Stephen Vladek, of something that you tweeted, which you said that the debate over how to understand the current SCOTUS term is really a fight over baselines. Are we comparing the big decisions thus far to how extreme they could have been, or are we comparing them to where we were at this time last year? First, Stephen Vladek, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, and, and I think Melissa teed this up perfectly. I mean, so Fulton is a great example of this. Is the takeaway from Fulton that the conservatives could not muster a majority to overrule Smith? Or is the takeaway from Fulton that, as Melissa says, right, a unanimous court, even with the three Democratic appointees, um, really tilted the scales that much further in favor of religious liberty in the you know ongoing series of conflicts between religious beliefs on the one hand and you know anti-discrimination regimes on the other um and you know how you answer that question mina says so much about your own priors so you know could the court have done more this term to move the constitutional agenda sharply to the right sure and are conservatives really upset that they didn't yes and are progressives breathing a sigh of relief that it could have been worse Yes, but that doesn't mean it's not still a dramatic rightward shift. And, you know, the, the tweet that you quoted me that talks about compared to this time last year, when, of course, Justice Ginsburg was still on the court. But Melissa's right to mention Justice Kennedy. I mean, I think we are also really starting to see the effects of Justice Kavanaugh and just how much daylight I think a lot of us always suspected there was hmm. between Justice Kennedy and Justice Kavanaugh so that, you know, the, the conservatives can lose a vote in some of these cases and still have a clear majority. And we did not see that in Fulton, but we've seen that in a bunch of other cases where, you know, compared to where we were, I mean, as recently as three years ago today, you know, before Justice Kennedy had announced he was retiring, this is a radically different court. Um, and that's reflected not just in what they're deciding, it's reflected in what cases they're taking. It's reflected in what they're doing on, you know, what you call the, the shadow docket, my, my bugaboo. Um, and I think that's why it's so important for folks to just sort of not buy into the first narrative they see. This is not a moderate court. This is not a consensus court. This is just, you know, a very, very sharply conservative majority that hasn't done quite as much as conservatives hoped and liberals feared, but has still done quite a lot in a very short period of time. So is there a baseline that you use or that you think is more appropriate to use here? I mean, I think it's both. Like, I think I think mm. a conversation about what kind of term it was really has to incorporate both compared to what it could have been and compared to where we were. And so, you know, when I see stories from, um, you know, Adam Liptak in The New York Times or, you know, whoever else, when people try to sort of re give their hot takes about the term and say, look, you know, Justice um, Breyer was in the majority more often than Justice Alito, I, I don't think that's telling us anything compared to, you know, the sort of small bucket of cases the court has taken, just how far, just how much the court has moved already in three years, which in the history of the court is a very, very short period of time yeah. um, toward positions that as recently as three years ago would have been unthinkable. And I mean, you know, one sort of technical example of this is a case from last Friday where the court um, dramatically limited the ability of consumers 
to sue when credit reporting companies violate their statutory rights under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, on the ground that from the majority's perspective, um, the, 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 the consumers had not suffered any, quote, concrete harm, unquote. Technical ruling, but it's a ruling that actually is radically conservative from an ideological standpoint, and one that really is a, a remarkable and, to my mind, deeply problematic assertion of judicial power at the expense of Congress's ability to create statutory rights and to provide for private enforcement of them. So, you know, I, I really think folks should be careful before assuming that just because the sky didn't fall, um, this isn't the conservative court that many sort of hoped for or feared. I think it very much is. Well, let me go to caller Tim in San Francisco now. Hi, Tim. Hey, good morning. Uh, I just have a brief comment. And one thing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 50-year-old gay man. And the one thing that frustrates me about every argument that comes up between religious freedom and um, and gay, transgender, uh, and queer um, identity or or rights, I should say, is that the the conservatives are always allowed to frame the argument. And what they one thing that is always neglected in these arguments is that uh, Christians, Muslims, whoever it is, have the right to choose. Their, their churches, they have the right to choose the God that they worship, they have, the, they, have, they have the freedom to choose these. Gay, lesbian, and transgender people do not have the choice to choose their sexual identity. So it is always, we always, um, you know, the conservatives always hide their homophobia under the idea that it goes against their religious belief. And I really want the conversation to change as far as um, you know, we all know it's disguised as, as, you know, their homophobia is always disguised under what they, you know, what their God is telling them. Well, their God hasn't told them anything because they can change the religion at any time and they can become, they can become atheists at any time. So the real, um, the real issue is that the court has allowed um, these churches to be openly homophobic and has said it, it is okay to discriminate against gay, lesbian and transgender people. Uh, who do not have the right to choose. Well, Tim, thank so, you for sharing that perspective. I actually want to get Melissa Murray's reaction to that. Melissa Murray, any thoughts on what Tim was sharing here about how the arguments are framed and whether that has an influence? So, you know, I, again, I think Tim makes a very provocative point um, just about the idea of what is an immutable identity and, and, and what is perhaps uh, an identity that can be assumed or shed at will. Um, I think it is interesting to note here, um, and again, this goes to Steve's earlier point about how far this court has moved to the right. I think we could say that more generally about the entire movement for religious freedom and how far it has shifted to the right. The case that we were talking about earlier, Employment Division versus Smith, which was decided in 1990, um, it was a case that was about a Native American who used peyote, a hallucinogenic drug, in the course of his religious practice. Um, you know, it was not a religious practice I think would be um, legible as sort of traditional Judeo-Christian religion, um, but was rather a, minor a minoritarian religious sect. 
that was a decision that was written by Justice Scalia and signed on to by a number of conservative justices, including Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice O'Connor, um, Justice Kennedy was also in the majority there. And Smith was wildly ha widely hailed by conservatives as a triumph of religion, religious freedom. And today we are in a situation where it is conservatives who are assailing Smith and calling for it to be overruled. And again, that is just a difference of 30 years or so. I mean, so really the whole idea of religious freedom and how it is deployed has really shifted and become quite conservative and really made a flip. And if I am summarizing correctly, Smith ruled that general laws that do not single out religion could not be challenged on the grounds that they violated the First Amendment's protection of the free exercise of religion. I just wanted to- um, That's right define that. Paul writes, if my sincerely held religious belief were to include human sacrifice and cannibalism, would the SCOTUS say I should be free to exercise my First Amendment right to practice it free of government interference? If not, then religious freedom is not absolute, and the current choices about just where to draw the line are incorrect, in my opinion. What's your read, Melissa Murray, on the fact that the Supreme Court decided not to hear the Virginia transgender case? The, the Virginia School Board was trying to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to reinstate its transgender bathroom ban there. So I, I think it's, we just learned about the denial of certiorari in that case, Grimm, um, just the other day. And again, I think that is an interesting note. I mean, the court obviously has a discretionary docket. It doesn't have to take every case that is appealed to it. Um, but choosing to avoid that case, I think, speaks largely to the unsettled nature of transgender rights in the United States. Um, the court often wades in once things, um, the sort of calculus of things becomes more clear. And, and I don't know that things are particularly settled in the area of transgendered rights right now. And so maybe that's part of it. But I also think that the next term is already shaping up to be something of a barn burner. So there is already a case about abortion, a challenge to a Mississippi ban on abortion at six weeks, um, excuse me, at 12 15, weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't or it 15? 15. Um, who knows at this point? There are so many of these bans. But yes, I think you're right. It's 15 weeks. Um, and there's a major gun rights case on the ballot or on the court's docket. And all of this is happening in the shadow of what will surely be a heavily contested midterm election that's coming up in 2022. So I imagine the court, um, which took a, a small number of cases this term, is also looking ahead and realizing that you know, this is something of a barn burner that's going to go down in October term 2021. And maybe they're trying to limit that as well. It kind of sounds a little bit, Stephen Vladek, like what you were saying just before I took that initial call from Tim in terms of just because the court, the conservative majority may not have, for lack of a better way of trying to phrase this, like kind of blown things up in terms of what what progressive and liberals tend to um honor like Roe v. Wade, for example, doesn't mean that they won't. And Melissa Murray is bringing up the Mississippi case where there is an opportunity to potentially look at whether or not Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which established a right to an abortion uh, before viability, whether or not that that could actually, in fact, be be ruled in a way where it would basically completely undermine Roe. So so do you think that's the case? Do you think next year will be a barn burner with these kinds of major rulings? Oh, I think there's no doubt, Mina. And, and I think I, I think Melissa is exactly right that the court is well aware of the the optics 
of taking these hotly divisive social justice, social policy, you know, religious infused disputes and handing down a whole bunch of decisions in June of an election year. So, you know, I think this is part of the pattern. But, but, you know, one other point, which I think is important in understanding any effort to sort of paint the term with the whole big broad brush, you know, President Trump, for better or for worse, was inordinately successful in appointing judges to the lower courts. And so the lower federal courts are about as conservative at this point as they've been in a very long time. So there are also going to be and have been plenty of pretty big, you know, pretty right-leaning decisions in the lower courts that just either aren't getting appealed to the Supreme Court or that the court's not taking up. Um, and so I think, you know, for folks who are sort of not as active of court watchers as we are, I, I really think it's important to sort of point out, you know, the, the court's docket management is oftentimes just as much of the story as the five, six, ten, you know, high profile, big front page headline cases that the court takes each term. And so, yes, I think next term is shaping up to be a barn burner and not just because of the, what's on the marquee. Well, Pete writes, please discuss the greening of Justice Roberts and how he might be moving to a role as a more moderate influence on the bizarre ideologies and biases of Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Do you think that's the case, Stephen Vladek? Um, In a word, no. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, you know, the Justice Stevens um, had, a, had a line that I think, you know, at least he deeply believed, which is that in his 35 years on the court, you know, he didn't move. The court moved around him. Um, and I think that's at least largely been true, with the exception, perhaps, of last term of Chief Justice Roberts. You know, Mina, there are cases where Chief Justice Roberts has institutional sensibilities that might lead him to side, at least in the voting, with the more Democratic appointees. But, you know, when push comes to shove, he is still a movement conservative who came up in the Reagan White House and the Reagan Justice Department. Um, and I think it's as much a sign of how far to the right the rest of the conservatives on the court are that we now look at the court and see John Roberts as the moderate. We're talking with Stephen Blodick, Professor Blot, the University of Texas School of Law. He's also co-host of the National Security Law Podcast and CNN's Supreme Court Analyst. Melissa Murray is with us, a professor of law at NYU School of Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny Podcast. You, our listeners, are also with us. What questions, reactions do you have to the opinions the court released so far? Also, the voting rights case that's still pending. What are your questions about that? Because we'll get into that right after the break. What do you think of how the court has wielded its 6-3 conservative majority? majority so far and how it may do so in the future. Did any of the court's holdings surprise you? Are you concerned about partisanship on the court? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Our email address is forum at kqed.org. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And uh, Michael tweets, the free exercise of religion is explicitly written into the Constitution while LGBTQ rights are not. It may be time for a new Equal Rights Amendment. We'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I'm joined by Stephen Vladek, Professor of Law at the University of Texas School of Law, and Melissa Murray, Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. We're talking about the Supreme Court and the opinions it's issued so far this term and what's to come. And Melissa Murray, that's one of the things that I really want to get into now. We're still waiting for a decision in the Arizona voting rights cases. There are uh, two voting provisions there that are at issue. One is a policy that requires an entire ballot to be thrown out if it was cast at the wrong precinct. The other is a state law that bars the collection of ballots by third parties, sometimes dubbed ballot harvesting. There were nearly two hours of debate on this. What do you think uh, a majority of justices will do? Well, I think based on the decisions that we already have and who has written them in the various sittings that the court had over the course of the term, that it's likely that this case is going to be written by Justice Alito. And I think if it is written by Justice Alito, I think you will have a fairly sizable and sweeping opinion that will make it much harder for voting rights claims to proceed. And remember, the issue in these two cases is what the standard that should be for courts to apply for challenges under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2 is the provision of the Voting Rights Act that allows for individuals to sue um, or challenge voting rights laws that are made. Um, remember, in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, the court essentially gutted the preclearance requirement regime that would have allowed for all changes to voting laws to first be vetted by the Department of Justice. Um, and when the court made that decision in 2013, it noted that there still was an opportunity. Sorry. Uh, sorry. My dog is very exercised about voting rights. Um, well, but- we could. Yes, go ahead. Well, they noted that Section 2 existed as a way of dealing with challenges to voting rights outside of the preclearance regime. So again, I think this is a very important case that will make it much harder to litigate voting rights claims um, if the court dismantles or makes the standard more difficult. So it sounds like you're saying that the majority of justice will, uh, justices will uphold both of these Arizona provisions. And what the question is, is what kind of reasoning they'll give for it. And that if it's written by Alito, that it could have a very broad impact in terms of people's ability to challenge voting laws, which we know there are a slew of across the country right now, uh, Georgia, for example, and Texas, that it'll be much harder for them. Stephen Blotty, can you explain what potentially could happen here that would make it harder to challenge voting laws, especially if they're viewed as voter suppression laws? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Texas, my, my, my home state of Texas is unfortunately a good example where, you know, the the new law that the Texas legislature um, is probably going to pass again during its special session um, would impose a number of additional hurdles to voting. And the question is whether it is enough to show that those laws create some kind of disparate impact, that the effect of these laws is to make it harder for particular groups of voters to vote, or do the challengers have to show that the legislature passed these laws with the purpose of actually making it harder for these folks to vote. Um, you know, Mina, I, the, the law sometimes gets complicated. I don't think it's hard, though, to see the difference between just having to show that the effect of a law is discriminatory versus having to show that the purpose is. And, you know, I think Melissa's is right. If Justice Alito has the opinion, there's a pretty good chance the Supreme Court's going to require 
anyone bringing a lawsuit against one of these new, um, you know, post-2020 election laws to have to show that the purpose was discrimination and violation of the Voting Rights Act and not just the effect. And, you know, that's so much harder to show. It's going to make it so much harder for folks in states like Texas to bring lawsuits to strike down laws that under the pre-clearance regime, under the Voting Rights Act prior to Shelby County, would never have been enacted in the first place. So basically you're saying that if these laws end up disenfranchising a lot of voters or people of color, for example, or racial minority groups for a term that tends to get used a lot in, in legal scholarship, that if it does that, that that won't be enough. What what people who are challenging voter suppression laws will have to prove is that there was intent. There was a deliberate attempt here to try to disenfranchise these groups. Is that right, Melissa Murray? That's right. Um, and again, the idea that you actually have to show discriminatory intent obviously raises the bar for those who are challenging voting laws and makes it much harder to prevail in court. And we've seen this same standard emerge in traditional employment cases, for example, the idea that disparate impact alone or disproportionate impact on a particular group by itself is not enough to get more searching judicial review or to invalidate a particular practice that you actually need to show intent. And imposing it here in the context of voting rights really undermines the strength of the Voting Rights Act. And at a time when we are seeing state legislatures throughout the country really advance more and more aggressive restrictions on voting. And so I I guess what I'm wondering then, Stephen Vladek, is there was this moment, I remember during arguments when Justice Coney Barrett questioned a lawyer from the Arizona Republican Party was really asking, you know, why is the state GOP bringing this case? And the answer was that politics is a zero-sum game, and every extra vote they get through, they get through, meaning Democrats, through unlawful interpretation of Section 2, hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing. I mean, I would think that that's not something maybe, say, John Roberts would want to be condoning here. So what are the other options in terms of potential outcomes for this case if Alito doesn't write this opinion? but that the conservative majority writes? I mean, it's a great question, and, and, and I'm, I'm wary of, of going too far out on a limb because I'm going to be wrong Thursday <laughs> no matter what I say. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the short answer is that because this case has taken so long, because it's going all the way to the last day of the term, it's possible that there's no majority. It's possible that the court's coming out differently on the two Arizona provisions at issue. I mean, there was, at least with regard to one of the provisions, um, an argument that it was actually up to the Secretary of State of Arizona, Katie Hobbs, to enforce it, not Attorney General Brnovich, which would mean there would be no standing. Um, you know, I, I think there are narrow ways, Mina, to send this case back to the Ninth Circuit without radically changing the scope of the Voting Rights Act. And so if, for example, we get a, an opinion from Chief Justice Roberts, maybe that's what he'll try to do, sort of not formally saying you have to show discriminatory purpose, but finding some other fault in what the Court of Appeals did. But, you know, the reality is, like, I think this is, there's a reason why people like us are so fixated on this case as a potential bellwether, because, you know, the justices don't live in a vacuum. They know what these state legislatures have been up to throughout the first six months of 2021. You know, these are the same justices who refused to get involved in claims that the 2020 election was beset by fraud. And so, I think it's going to be very, very hard for the court to find a narrow way out here 
that doesn't come out with a distinctly partisan valence. And given the composition of the court at the moment, you know, even without Chief Justice Roberts, that valence tips in one direction. Well, can I ask you both about one last case here? And this is the cheerleader profanity case. It's been hailed, Melissa Murray, as a victory for student speech rights because basically a former cheerleader who went online and dropped some F-bombs about her school after she didn't make the varsity cheerleading team uh, was suspended. The parents then sued, and this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about your your reaction to the way that uh, they decided this case, and if you could also just remind us what the decision was, and that it's actually a bit more complex and significant than meets the eye. Well, it is significant. Um, This is the first case in probably 50 years in which a student has prevailed in a free speech challenge involving schools. Um, This was a decision that was written by Justice Breyer. Um, And again, I think the court here was really sort of struggling for a kind of unanimity. Um, It wasn't a unanimous decision. Um, Justice Thomas um, was not in the majority here, so it was eight to one. But I think even in those decisions where the majority is quite broad, the grounds for decision is actually quite narrow in order to accommodate all of the different interests of the various parts of the court. And the majority basically here said that um, it didn't believe that the special characteristics that would traditionally give schools additional license to regulate speech always disappear when the speech to be regulated occurs off campus. So Hmm. again, um, you know, this particular speech, the F-bombs that the salty cheerleader dropped, um, the court said was not regulable by the school, but it left open the possibility that there could be episodes or some kinds of off-campus speech that would be regulable. And, you know, Justice Alito also wrote a concurrence here in, in which he seemed to be sort of speaking broadly about sort of the emergence of a kind of cancel culture that, um, you know, that there might be kinds of speech, maybe conservative speech, for example, um, where students um, might be bullying other students who had different views. And, and that sort of thing should be regulable by the school district. But again, the court was at great pains to try and limit this and, and make this quite narrow. So the salty cheerleader can go forward and she can say these things because it's not disruptive necessarily to the school environment, but it doesn't mean that the school is completely prohibited from regulating speech off campus. And I think the environment of this last year, when so much of school has occurred off of campuses and on television screens or computer screens, just makes it harder to draw these lines between what is campus, what is not campus, and whether speech actually can be disruptive to the school environment if we don't really have a clear sense of what the school environment physically is like. Hmm. What stood out to you, Stephen Blodick, about this case? I mean, it is interesting that while this particular cheerleader's speech is okay, that it clearly rejected the idea that schools cannot regulate off-campus speech. Yeah, I mean, I think in that respect, Dina, what really stood out to me is actually how little the decision resolved. Um, that, you know, the Court of Appeals in Philadelphia in this case um, had basically adopted a categorical rule that off-campus means beyond school's jurisdiction. Lots of reasons why that rule, I think, goes too far. But, you know, once you're saying that the line is not on or off campus, then all of a sudden we're talking about the line being based on content, where what the school can regulate and what it cannot regulate depends upon what the student is saying and what its effects are. And, you know, Mina, that might make a lot of sense in the abstract, 
school boards and school districts and teachers are going to have a devil of a time drawing that line in practice. And so, you know, I think this is one of those cases where folks see the headline and say, well, duh, you know, we all have sympathy for the, the, the feisty cheerleader, um, the salty cheerleaders, Melissa put it, but where actually the real impact of the decision is going to be the literally hundreds of cases it's going to spurn over where the line actually is between what schools can and can't do with regard to regulating off-campus student speech. So it was Justice Breyer who wrote this opinion, and it basically sounds like you're saying that he's raised a lot of questions with it with regard to what constitutes something that's so disruptive that a school can regulate it. Wondering if I could get your thought on whether or not you think Breyer's going to retire. I, I feel like this is something that I'm starting to read again a lot about as the Supreme Court term comes to a close, Stephen Vladek. Do you have a read on this? And I know I've been asking you both to do a lot of a lot of predicting right now that I know you hate to do, but just curious to get your thoughts. I, I think anyone who says with confidence that they have a read on whether Justice Breyer is going to retire um, is selling something. The, you know, I, I think the reality is that um, he understood, even though I think sometimes he says things publicly that lead the Twitterati to criticize him and suggest that he doesn't actually understand what's going on. Um, I don't think that's right. I think he deeply understands the very fraught political situation we're in. I think he understands the stakes. I think he doesn't need to be reminded of who got to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. Um, I think the trickier part is sort of his assessment, right, of whether now is the time, whether August is the time when you know, the term has been over for six to eight weeks and, and the pressure has come off the court of it, whether the middle of next term is the time, whether next summer is the time. And, you know, the only person who knows the answer to that is him. Um, I will just say that, you know, I think folks should not assume just because he doesn't announce his retirement Thursday when the court hands down its last end of the term, that that means he's here to stay through the end of next term. I could easily see him, you know, saving an announcement for later this summer um, you know, to sort of, again, try to take at least some of the political pressure off of the situation. Stephen Vladek is Professor of Law at University of Texas School of Law, Melissa Murray, Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Melissa Murray, I don't know if you want to weigh in on Breyer or not. We've got a couple of comments here I can also throw to you. Um, I, I have nothing more to add. Okay. He seems to have enjoyed the pandemic, but also seems to be enjoying his day job. <laughs> Rich writes, an important difference of the peyote use case is that allowing their religious freedom, the use of peyote expanded liberty and allows someone to do something that only affects themselves, allowing discrimination against other people, e.g. the foster parent case, and claiming religion as an excuse is not comparable. This listener tweets, are there any company towns left, this was about the union organizing case, where the union organizing decision could be used to ban all political and even religious speech contrary to the firm's views? Wondering if you have any reactions to either of those comments, Melissa Murray. Um, well, I'll say about the first comment. Um, that is exactly the point I wanted to make when I, I mentioned that the entire question of LGBTQ equality seemed to have sort of fallen out in the Fulton opinion, even though it had been um, very much on the surface in the Masterpiece Cake Shop opinion that Justice Kennedy wrote a few years ago. Um, this whole idea of religious exercise and third-party harms um, ha has been a very you know, potent one in the court's free exercise jurisprudence. Like Religious liberty cannot impose harms on third parties. And I think what we are seeing 
over time in the, this current court's free exercise jurisprudence is a slow but very deliberate diminution of that idea mm. of third party harm and, and the prohibition on third party harm. And that is something I think should be concerning. Well, let me go to caller Mark in East Palo Alto quickly. Mark, let's see if we can get you in. Go right ahead, Mark. Yeah, hi. Um, I was uh, concerned about the, this court's, uh, <clears throat> the way they're, they're handling religion as well. Um, it seems to me that they're really pushing in a religious agenda, and it's not so much about religious freedom as religious privilege. They're privileging religion over pretty much everything else. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that, that it seems to me when, they, when we talk about religion in this country, we're not really talking about religion. We're talking about Christianity. <laughs> um, we're talking about primarily evangelical-style Christianity, really, um, and not, not, not nobody else, really. Um, and I don't know if you guys talked about this. I came in a little bit late uh, today, but, excuse me, um, a really interesting sort of game, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun to play, I don't know if that's the right term, um, is make it black. Um, so, for instance, with the, the decision where um, <clears throat> they're, they're uh, not allowing... Sorry. Mark, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we we do just have a short amount of time, and I, I think I understand the gist of what you're saying here. And, and I guess what I'd like to end with by asking you both, we just have a minute left. Bottom line, what is your take on this court? Mark is talking about his concern about a privileging religion and that being a major priority of it. I just want to get your bottom line take as we await our, the next decisions and look ahead to the next term. Uh, Stephen Vladek, start us off. I mean, I think I mean, the bottom line is that this is the most conservative court we've seen in, the life, in our lifetimes. Um, it's the most conservative court the Supreme Court has seen since the early 1930s. Um, and it's a court that is moving sharply to the right on any number of topics, including, per Mark's question, religion. Um, and just because this year the court didn't go as far as it could have, I think doesn't mean that we're not in for a pretty sharp word continuing turn to the right on the nation's highest court. Um, mm. even as we are seeing the politics at both the state and federal level really move in some respects, if not the rhetoric, at least the politics toward the middle. Melissa Murray, 20 seconds. I, I would echo everything that Steve said and add that not only is this the most conservative court that we've seen in our lifetime, the lower courts are also perhaps the most conservative than we've seen in, in some period of time. And so, again, um, elections matter, state elections matter. All of this is really important. I'm making sure that uh, if you care about this stuff, that progressive legislation gets through in, in those places and that it's not stopped at the courts. Well, thanks for the context. Thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.